This episode is brought to you by Rewind. Rewind offers e-commerce brands a solution that protects their stores against unexpected downtime. Rewind adds an undo button to your store, continually saving every change you make and backing up the critical data which runs your business. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable and durable outdoor furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. In case you don't already know, Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce companies. Stay tuned to hear from Alexandra Collis, the Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly, an online fashion powerhouse, to hear how Gorgeous enables Princess Polly to manage all of their customer service channels in one place. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 102 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee, and today I spoke with Katina Mutanos, the founder and CEO of Costarina. Founded on the simple belief that high-quality olive oil is a superfood, Costarina is on a mission to set a new standard and showcase how extra virgin olive oil works from both the inside and outside to provide significant health and wellness benefits. In this episode, Katina shares her journey growing up as a Greek-American living between Long Island and Greece during the summer, to starting her first company, Manicube, which got acquired by Elizabeth Arden Red Door Spas, to working for Jet.com, which got acquired by Walmart, to launching Costarina in 2020. She talks about how Costarina started as a side hustle, what she wished she had known about selling wholesale, some limiting beliefs she had to overcome around fundraising, and why she's expanding the brand into the beauty space. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can follow us on Spotify or check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Katina. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building Coast Arena. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Lee. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Yeah. So you're calling in from Manhattan. Where in New York are you? I'm in Midtown Manhattan right now, 50th and Park, um, and it's a snowy day. Wow. Snowing. Yes. Do not miss the snow of those New York days when I used to live there. Much prefer the sunshine in LA <laughs> during these months specifically. Yeah. So where are you from originally? Are you from the New York area? I am. Yes, I grew up in Long Island, New York, um, and then also spent all my summers in Greece. So definitely a Greek-American kid that's kind of split their life, their youth between both countries. Wow. So every summer you went to Greece? 
Yes. Every time I went to Greece, um, I think, uh, you know, one of the most formative things about my childhood was that my mother worked for British Airways. Um, she essentially uh, had a job that allowed us to fly for free. So we, we traveled a lot and a lot more than we probably could have otherwise. And so we spent like every February vacation, every winter vacation, every Easter vacation and every summer vacation in Greece, uh, in Southern in our hometown. And so are both sides of your, your family from Greece? Yes. Both my mom and my dad are emigrated here in the seventies. Did they? And so did they meet here or did they meet in Greece first? They met here. They were next door neighbors in Brooklyn. What? What do you mean next? What? How do you meet your next door neighbor? And like, I haven't heard that story before. Right. Um, Yeah. They lived in an apartment building and they lived in the apartments right next door. And it was like another Greek family. So they became like really close family friends. So they've known each other since they were basically kids. Whoa, that is so funny. That's awesome. So they moved here in the 70s around the same time, I guess, and happened to meet in the same building next door to each other. Yep. It's wow. Awesome. Yeah, they, they were teenagers uh, by the time they came here from Greece. So I say kids, but they were really, you know, teens uh, approaching high school time. Yeah. And so are they kind of from the same area in Greece? No, they are they are from different areas of Greece. My dad is from southern Greece um, near the beach. Uh, and that's where sort of all the olive growing happens. My mom is from central Greece in the mountains. So actually very, very different ends of uh, ends of the earth as it relates to the topography and, and the atmosphere. How long does it take to get from the south to the north? Um, from my dad's town to my mom's town, it's about seven hours. If you wanted to drive across all of Greece, it's, it's probably, it's more than that. Um, I would, my get best guess is 11 or 12 hours north to south. Oh my gosh. Wow. I have never been to Greece, but I would love to go one day. I feel like it's probably just such a beautiful place. Honestly, you have to, it's so beautiful. It has amazing food, culture, beaches, like everything you want in a good vacation. It's really, uh, it's, it, it's a must do. And when you do go, please reach out to me so I can help you plan your trip. <laughs> um, yes, I will be calling you and getting and going to your olive, you know, orchards or whatever they're called <laughs> and check out what those look like. So they moved here, you know, they obviously had you, what was it like growing up as a kid? What were, what kind of kid were you? Yeah. Um, I was definitely into school very focused on school and homework. I carried around like a humongous backpack. Um, people would say like, Why I feel do you like we it? all did at that time. It was brutal. My yeah. parents were, were like so upset about it. They're like, you're going to have back problems because exactly. of this. it's so heavy because yeah. you literally have to carry every freaking book all like every day back and forth from home. Yeah. Yeah. I brought a huge backpack. I would bring every textbook home, like just in case I had time to read ahead or something like that. And yeah, I grew up in a Greek American community too. A lot of my closest friends were Greek. I went to Greek school. I went to Greek dancing school. And uh, some of my closest friends are still from from the Greek community, of course, like tons of other non-Greek friends as well. But it was definitely like a very critical part of my my upbringing. Grew up in the food business as well. My dad owned restaurants um, and is still sort of in the restaurant and catering business even to this day. Um, And so grew up working in the restaurants, you know, from probably like, 11 or 12 years old, all jobs, coat girl, hostess, helped out across the board um, and really grew up sort of in that atmosphere. That's pretty cool. Were these restaurants in Long Island? In Queens, actually, in Queens, New York. Um, And then since then, he's had uh, catering halls in Long Island. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. And so do you have any siblings? I do. I have a younger brother. Um, He actually works on the Costa Rica business with me in addition to our broader family business alongside my dad. 
Nice. Very family oriented business happening. Yeah. Very family oriented (laughs) across the board. Wow. That's cool. And so when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? Were you like, I want to own restaurants too, like my dad or, you know, what was your thought process? Yeah, no, it really wasn't that. I went through a couple of, uh, you know, career aspirations. I think my first was that I wanted to be an eye doctor. Um, I'm not sure why. I think think it's because I wore glasses as a kid and I went to the eye doctor all the time. And I just thought that that was an interesting job. (laughs) But I think like in high school, I began to realize that I really wanted to be sort of in the business world and um, got my first taste of like economics and and finance and marketing. And then uh, really went down that path in college, uh, began to have my first internships. What were those? What were your first internships? So um, my first job in college was actually at uh, Macy's Herald Square at the Estee Lauder makeup counter. Um, (laughs) Nice. I feel like everybody knows what that is. They're like, I've been to that counter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I went to NYU undergrad. And so, yeah, worked at Estee Lauder um, really just for some cash um, in my spare time. And I think, um, you know, that was my first introduction to customer service and the beauty industry where I did spend, you know, have spent a lot of my career and um, a lot of my love for consumer products comes from that, that early experience. So I actually haven't talked about that in a long time. It's funny that you asked. Oh, what? The Estee Lauder gig? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Those are like such important jobs. I like to hear about those early jobs because they're actually, they can be pretty transformative too, right? You're really learning for the first time, all of the the skills that's kind of necessary for customer service and just such a wide variety of skills that you actually need to build a company and yeah. And, and just operations. Like I remember stocking, stocking the shelves and being in the stock room and managing inventory. So yeah, definitely some good learnings early on, you know, working on the floor of the makeup counter. That's awesome. So you went to NYU. Yes, I went to NYU. And then you had asked about my internship. Some of my first, um, you know, more academic focused internships were at the New York Stock Exchange and then um, at American Express and uh, a marketing internship, which were both also like pretty formative, like my first corporate experience, um, first time working in an office, um, you know, trying to understand the bigger picture, trying to figure out what they did there. Um, And it was all just really, really exciting to me. I loved those early jobs. What happened after college? After college, I took my first full-time role in investment banking. So I worked in uh, finance at Citigroup and worked in the shipping industry. And that also ties back to being Greek. So a lot of uh, shipping companies are owned by Greeks. A lot of Greek is spoken in the shipping industry. And so um, that's sort of how I ended up there. And um, I did two years here in New York, uh, downtown in Tribeca, and then two years in London. Um, and I think my mom working for British Airways kind of placed that sort of London travel work aspect in my head. And I had already traveled there quite a bit through my mom's job. And yeah, I loved living in London, would travel to a different city or country every weekend, um, spent a lot of time in France. And um, yeah, it's just like kind of a dream life in your early 20s. So really, really enjoyed that all while sort of alongside building, building from a career perspective um, into an associate at Citigroup. Oh, nice. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, in your early 20s, get to Europe ASAP, right? Yeah, exactly. You, you really have to travel. That's the key time in life to be traveling as much as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing opportunity. And so you were there for two years and you came back to the States after that? Yeah. I came back here for business school. Um, I went to business school at Harvard in 2006 to 2008, um, which was also just an incredible experience. Met some amazing, amazing people. Felt like it was a break from, you know, the 90 hour work weeks I was putting in, in in finance, but still, you know, advancing my career in a meaningful way. 
and really just gained access to open my eyes to a lot of different perspectives across business and, and realize there's more than just finance and investment banking and all the different industries out there and sort of developed like the desires for the, for the future path of my career, for sure. What made you want to get your MBA? Did you feel like it would help you get to the next level in what way? Like why pursue it? Yeah, I think I pursued my MBA because I was applying for jobs at um, like CPG companies that I was interested in. Like I was really interested in the beauty industry. I thought I might be interested in fashion and I was applying to jobs and they were like, great, come work on our finance team. And I was like, no, no, I want to work in marketing or new product development. And no one really saw me that way. And so um, I think, you know, going back for my MBA was what allowed me to make that you know, career switch, even that early, like you really do get pigeonholed in some ways. And um, yeah, after uh, my MBA experience, I went to work at L'Oreal and that was, you know, my first taste of true, you know, consumer products and the beauty industry and something just totally different. I, I was in the marketing function um, and helping to develop new brands and concepts for new brands. And it was just much more creative. I worked with a lot more women. Yeah. <laughs> I bet finance versus the beauty industry is like a very, very big concept. It was a stark <laughs> contrast for sure. It was totally different. And I was like, wow, like work can be so different um, in different industries and different roles. Um, and yeah, really enjoyed that experience at L'Oreal as well. And so you were there for about two years. What, what ended up, you know, kind of propelling a shift away from the beauty um, or from L'Oreal into something else? I got a call from actually a business school classmate of mine who was asking me questions about L'Oreal and selling on e-commerce. And he was calling about a company called Quidzy. Um, they had started a few different websites. One was called diapers.com and they were launching like an online drugstore called soap.com. I just was sort of intrigued by everything he was talking about. E-commerce was actually still pretty new at the time. This was 2009, 2010, um, and ended up leaving uh, L'Oreal to go to Quidzy, which was this company that um, was all e-commerce, CPG, and ended up getting acquired by Amazon. And there was my, I think, where I fell in love with like early stage startup life and entrepreneurship. I worked for two amazing entrepreneurs, um, one who went on to start Jet.com, who I worked for again a second time. And um, I remember my first day on the job, I uh, went into my boss's office and I was like, here are the beauty. I, I was running the beauty categories for, for them at the time, which made sense, like from my L'Oreal background. And I was like, I'm, these are the brands I'm thinking of reaching out to. And she literally said to me, why are you asking me? And I was like, oh, like I don't have to ask. Like I could just, I fell in love with that autonomy that you get in a small, you know, environment when a company is earlier stage and that you don't have like layers of bureaucracy and approvals that are, you know, necessary when you are running brands that are, you know, 20 plus billion and you have to have processes in place. It just felt so different and I, it was very refreshing. And, um, you know, I say it's a blessing and a curse, but that's when I fell in love with entrepreneurship and I don't think I can go back to, you know, big company life as I knew it again. Yeah. I mean, I hear you on that one. I feel like most people, once you get that bug, you just can't ignore it anymore. It's like a one-way street. <laughs> yeah. No going back. So what happened after that? You kind of realized I like this startup environment and tell us about Manicube. Yeah. So um, Quidzy got acquired by Amazon um, and, you know, it was big company life again. And so um, I started to think about uh, starting my own business. I had this idea that was interesting and I wanted to pursue really, 
Manicube was a company that did beauty services and personal care services in corporate offices. So not the world today, but imagine that world where people went to work every day from eight to six um, and they were, you know, really, really busy and never really had like downtime. And so we actually started with manicures and um, chair massages in corporate offices. And it was really to sort of level the playing field. And in my finance days, I had seen lots of those types of services for men, like shoe shine, dry cleaning, and men's haircuts, and really nothing for women. And so my co-founder and I set out to start Manicube. And um, we ran that business for three and a half years. And we ended up exiting to uh, Elizabeth Arden Red Door Spas in, in 2015. That's so amazing. That's such an exciting ride you must have had a ton of learnings and takeaways from that experience. Manicube was really my first foray as an entrepreneur on my own, um, alongside my co-founder, who's now a very, very good friend of mine. And, you know, in terms of learnings, I, I don't even know where to begin. I basically learned how to launch a company, how to manage a company, how to hire a team. You know, I had done that in, in small ways before, but this was the first time really doing it at scale. We built a team of 33 people, learned what you know, how to manage a PR agency, how to build marketing campaigns, really just like touching every single function. Um, I also learned how to clean nail tools in my bathtub. Um, (laughs) Oh, the the variety of things you learn as a founder, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Yep. And then, um, you know, sadly also learned how to fire people. When, When we were acquired by Elizabeth Arden, they did not acquire the whole team. And so, um, you know, we had to fire 17 people in one day. And so, yeah, not without its challenges for sure. Um, And so, yeah, just tons of learning in an early stage. And to any of your listeners who are thinking about, you know, taking roles at early stage companies or, or venturing out on their own, honestly, there's nothing better from a learning perspective than being at a small company because you really just do so much. I see one of my team members who, you know, joined you know, only a few years out of college. And she's literally touched like three or four different functions and has learned so much. And you just don't get that in in a role at a big company. Yeah. I think it also takes probably a, a certain personality too, to be able to jump in on the ground floor of an early stage company and really run with it instead of kind of being told what to do. It's like, hey, here's all the things we need to do and I'm going to do this and just start kind of delivering, right? It's a very certain type of, uh, I think, self-motivated person maybe, or how would you describe that type of personality? A self-starter. Yeah. Really someone who doesn't, you know, they're not going to come to you and say like, here's how I'm thinking about, you know, approaching this, or they're just going to go do it. And if they don't know how to do it, they're going to find the resources to do it and come to come to you for guidance, of course, but really just like starting and running with it on their own. Absolutely. And so what was it like post acquisition? Now you're, you know, part of a much bigger machine. How did that go? Yeah. So once again, I was part of an acquisition of a larger company. Um, and again, remembering how much I love the small early stage, um, I actually ended up leaving not too long after the acquisition because Mark Laurie, who's one of the co-founders of Quidzy, ended up starting Jet.com. He called me with um, you know, a job opportunity and Jet.com was on a rocket ship. They had raised one of the largest Series A rounds in history. You know, I'd worked with a lot of the people Mark hired at Jet.com I had worked with before at Quidzy, and it was an amazing, amazing team. So I ended up going there for the small company atmosphere. And a few months later, we were acquired by Walmart. (laughs) (laughs) So like I kept kept trying to be at a small company, but ended up at the Fortune One. 
Right. <laughs> You're like, what the heck is going on here? Uh, no, but it was great. I mean, it's great. These experiences are just so meaningful and like, you know, sitting through some of these acquisitions are such great learning experiences. And, and actually my experience at Walmart was um, a really, really rewarding one. It was tremendous because after um, a little while after the acquisition, I started uh, talking with Mark about developing a group that launched uh, consumer products brands that were owned by Walmart that sold direct to consumer online, but also sold in Walmart stores. And so it really had a privilege of building a team that would create these new brands, create these CPG products, launch them, sell them online and in, in Walmart stores. Um, and that was just a, an incredibly rewarding experience. And that sort of takes me to the launch of Costarina. That's awesome. And so how, what were some of the brands, I guess, um, that were part of that incubator, I guess you might say, at Walmart? Um, we launched a brand in the home space called Allswell. It was um, home bedding, mattresses, and home decor. We launched a beauty supplements brand, and we also worked on a, uh, the launch of a fashion brand that was all focused on sustainable materials. So ton of, you know, business building, brand building experiences. What are some, you know, insights you have into building a consumer brand that you might be able to share for those out there trying to do that? Authenticity and being mission driven really, really helps when building a consumer products brand, both because the consumer can kind of see through it when it's not authentic and we don't have a real reason for being, and you just have sort of like a business case, like you're identifying white space in the market. Um, it all feels so different than, you know, sort of the place where I am today in, in building a brand that like, I truly love. That's really, really authentic to who I am and how I grew up and how I'd like the world to move. And so I think that that authenticity and, and it helps to, to, build a team as well. And so you're looking for mission-driven people who are buying into that mission. And what you can accomplish when you have that is just so much greater than when people see it as just a job or just a paycheck. Right. Absolutely. And what about from a leadership perspective, managing teams, both at your own company and at these other jobs that you've had, what kind of leadership qualities have you kind of picked up along the way that you realized looking back that you didn't have early on, but you, you learned and kind of, um, kind of adapted to? Um, I think I've picked up some leadership lessons all all along the way and some some super tactical and like how to communicate with your team. But um, I think that leading a team at a large company is harder than at, at your own startup. There's just a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of 360 reviews. There's a lot of uh, people sort of asking for a raise and, you know, feeling they deserve more. And sometimes you can give it to them and sometimes you can't. And some things are in your control and some things are out. You know, when you're um, an entrepreneur, you have a lot of autonomy. And while you have usually less resources, um, you can be completely honest with with your team. And I think you can be honest in either scenario, but you can be open and, and explain sort of where the company is at and what the company needs are. And if you do have a team that is mission driven, they're willing to come along for the ride, even though everything might not line up perfectly for them from like a compensation standpoint or, you know, benefits standpoint or something like that. And so I think it's easier to inspire a team when you really believe in the mission of the company and, and what you're building. Absolutely. Totally agree on that one. So how did you get the idea for Costa Rica? So um, Costa Rica really started when I was a kid because we, uh, my family makes olive oil in Southern Greece. 
And um, when I sort of grew up a bit and became an adult and started cooking at home, I would run out of, you know, what our family sent to us. I would go to the supermarket, Fairway in New York City to buy, you know, Greek extra virgin. And honestly, it just tasted gross. I was like, this is not a Greek extra virgin. Like, why does it say that on the bottle? I tried Italian extra virgin, same thing. And just realized that the quality of the olive oil on the supermarket shelf here was nothing like what I was used to and what I had access to, you know, through my family farm in Greece. And then really dove into the health benefits. So that sort of spurred me to take an olive oil sommelier course. I didn't even know that existed. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's definitely not as in-depth as like a wine sommelier. Uh-huh. Um, it's it's quick, but you really can dive in on, you know, the taste and uh, profile of extra virgin olive oil. You can identify what is an early harvest extra virgin olive oil. And so I really sort of began to learn about the health benefits in this course and realized how powerful and how potent extra virgin olive oil can be for health. So when you do preserve these polyphenols, which are antioxidants, they're essentially anti-inflammatory to the body. They have been reported by hundreds of studies to reduce the risk of chronic disease. So cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, heart disease, literally just like a tablespoon or two a day can have a really meaningful impact on health. And it really just made me want to bring that amazing product to the U.S. and educate the U.S. consumer on it. And I think when I got really excited about, you know, leaving Walmart in a role that I actually really enjoyed to start the brand was when I began to think about extra virgin olive oil as a hero product across a number of different categories. So if you look at the lineup of Costa Rica today, it spans olive oils, balsamic vinegars. We make dark chocolate bars with extra virgin olive oil. We make a fresh olive oil cake, really in the hopes of teaching people that cooking and baking with olive oil instead of things like butter and canola oil can be much, much healthier. And then we also have a skincare line, all made with extra virgin olive oil. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Have you ever experienced lost sales due to downtime caused by a corrupt CSV, malicious attack, or rogue third-party app? Even if it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. That's why brands like Pier 1 Import, Lord & Taylor, Hasbro, and Staples use Rewind to keep their store protected. Rewind gives you peace of mind, protects your data, and saves you time and money by easily restoring your data, automatically backing up and keeping a record of every change you make. Get a 30-day free trial with Rewind today by going to rewind.io slash stairway to CEO. That's R-E-W-I-N-D io slash stairway to CEO. Spring is in the air, which means summer will be here in no time. But is your patio or backyard ready for action? With Outer, you can get your outdoor space decked out with the best looking sustainable sofas, chairs, coffee tables, eco-friendly rugs, and don't forget their celebrity favorite, bug shield blanket to keep those mosquitoes away. Want to check it out for yourself? Browse over a thousand outer customers backyards online and visit a neighborhood showroom in your own neighborhood to experience outer products in person before you decide to buy. And when you decide to buy, you can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code stairway200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture purchases with the promo code stairway200 on liveouter.com. 
I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. I have a quote and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. The gorgeous platform allows our agents a seamless place to just do it all. We are really there for the customer every step of the way if they want. Our customers expect quality and efficiency where they are. So the real question is, how do you get quality and efficiency across every single platform? And then once you have it, how do you maintain it? And I believe that with the Gorgeous platform, we can do that. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, go to gorgeous.com and mention podcast for two months free. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. I saw that you guys are kind of um, expanding into the beauty space. And I was curious why that, why that direction, right? You're kind of in the food space with the, with olive oils. Why try to go into the beauty? Part of it is my background and, and my career, you know, in beauty and growing up in that space and loving it. Um, And I think part of it is that olive oil has been used in the Mediterranean on skin and hair for literally thousands of years. Is this the same exact thing? Like, I know that you have a face oil and you have like the oil bomb. Like there are a few products that you guys have launched, but I'm wondering, you know, is it the same exact thing in the tube? Like, what if I, could I put the tube on my face (laughs) from the, am I, is that how it is? It's just like in a different packaging. Like, could I literally just No, um, it is not the same thing at all. So olive oil is very good for skin. So in Greek culture, we actually baptize our babies in extra virgin olive oil. It's sort of deemed the safest and most efficacious moisturizer. And like when you have a rash and as a Greek kid, your mom's like, go put olive oil on it. It's really, but what about coconut oil? Are they neck and neck or like, who's the better one? (laughs) Um, I mean, I'm obviously biased. biased (laughs) Why am I asking (laughs) that? Um, I do think coconut oil has its place for sure, but um, yeah. Yes, olive oil has very potent antioxidant benefits for skin and hydration benefits. Um, But to answer your question, our face oil is not the same product as our food product. So olive oil actually is a pretty big molecule and cannot truly penetrate the skin on on its own. And so we've reformulated the olive oil for face um, with some carrier oils that will help to get those antioxidants and the olive oil molecules into your skin. Um, We've also added a lot of um, other ingredients, one being something called lachistim, which comes from actually a tree that goes and grows in Greece that has collagen reproduction properties. And then the third thing is you don't, you don't really want to smell like food in your background, in your bathroom, um, and you don't want to smell food on your face every day. So we have added an essential oil blend to the face oil to create like a very pleasing scent. It's meant to transport you to the Mediterranean. It's an essential oil blend and it smells amazing. I would love to get you some to try. That's awesome. Yeah. I'd love to try it. And so that's, that's good to know that I'm not putting, you know, slathering this um, food (laughs) oil on my face noted. Um, but I did try the balsamic that you sent and the, the olive oil, and they are really good. They're very, it's a premium product, which is unique. It's really dense actually too. It definitely feels like I'm in the Mediterranean when I'm having some olive oil and balsamic vinegar, because there is a difference, right? Like when you go to Europe and you have balsamic 
vinegar, it's thicker. It's just feels, it, it tastes so different than the watered down versions that I've had, you know, kind of here in the U S yeah. Um, the longer balsamic ages, the thicker it gets and it sort of gets actually like reduced in quality, but it gets thicker. Um, and so, yes, I, I love our, the texture of our balsamic. It's sort of, um, it's thick, but it's not like a glaze. It doesn't have added sugar. It adds like that hint of sweetness with a little bit of acidity. So it, it's really like, it adds some really nice dimension to salads and cheese and things like that. We also use our balsamic a lot on ice cream. If you've never tried that, it's delicious. Yeah. We have a dark chocolate flavored balsamic vinegar. It's really yummy. It's like a chocolate syrup reimagined. Yes. <laughs> it's made out of grapes instead of high fructose corn syrup. Right. Exactly. That's funny. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's exactly what you said. It's this mix of, it's not, it's definitely not watered down. It's not thin in any way, but it's not that glaze that is like really heavy. It's this perfect consistency that it's um, really good on salads. And I just had it with some bread this morning. So yeah, it's wonderful. And so when did you launch the business? It looks like two years ago. Yeah, just about two years ago, January, 2020, just before the pandemic. Oh, fun. So uh, what, and how did the uh, pandemic, you know, kind of impact the business? So I really kind of know no other way because we really only launched two months before the pandemic. So I don't know what life would have been like pre-pandemic for Costa Rica, but um, I think it did have some positive benefits because we, you know, so many people were cooking at home and seeking, you know, restaurant style quality um, in their food at home. And so, you know, a lot of people were learning how to cook for the first time. There was also a much more renewed focus on health and wellness. So in some ways, the pandemic was good for, you know, an emerging olive oil brand and and sort of getting our name out there. Definitely. And what was your kind of go-to-market strategy or, you know, I guess, how long did it take before you even got to market and launched to create the product? And how did you think about bringing this product to market? Like, did you think, did you like, which products did you launch with at first? And what was your thought process towards getting it out there? Yeah. So I haven't given you the full story because I actually launched Costa Rica as a passion project to friends and family in 2017 while I was still in my full-time role. So it was really kind of like my side gig or passion project, I would call it. I don't think I ever thought it would be, you know, my full-time thing. It was really because I wanted this good olive oil here and I couldn't find it. Um, And I loved talking about it and learning about it. And I loved like the platform. And um, so it launched with literally one skew. It was our original extra virgin olive oil essentially a $30 bottle of, of hot, really premium, high antioxidant, extra virgin olive oil. And um, the way I launched it was I put up a Squarespace site and I sent an email to like two or 300 of my closest friends and family. And it really just began to grow organically from there. People would buy, I think that first year I knew every single email address of the orders coming in. I knew all the names and then there would be some names that I didn't know. And I was like, Oh, how did they find out about it? Um, wasn't really doing any marketing. And then, um, you know, I think the reason that I decided to, you know, leave my role at Walmart and launch it was um, in 2019, I ran uh, what's called an NPS survey. Um, It's something called net promoter score. And essentially like on a scale of one to 10 tells you how many of your customers are promoters. And that NPS survey came back at 100. 
I had been running those MPS surveys for all my brands at Walmart and, you know, they range 40s, 50s. If you get into the 60s, that's really good. And so I had never seen numbers like that. Granted, it was a small base, but I was like really, you know, compelled by those numbers. And um, I was like, you know, I think there's really something here. Once people try this product, they really can't go back to their traditional supermarket brand and um, was just sort of thrilled to be able to, to amplify and step on the gas a little bit. So you really kind of looked at that NPS score as a metric almost for success to take it more seriously. And so that was 2019. And it sounds like pretty shortly after you just decided to, to quit your job. I think a lot of entrepreneurs um, are probably working on you know a side passion project and they have a full-time job and they're trying to balance or figure out when to make that leap. What do you think, you know, beyond just that hundred, you know, score, that really great score, what other things contributed to you quitting your job? I think that um, the product was ready. I do, you know, advise young people who are toying with entrepreneurship. Don't leave your day job until you like have a product because that product development process takes a long time. Like my first olive oil bottle, I hated the cap. Um, you know, it didn't look as premium. I didn't love the branding as much. And you can iterate on that. Um, there was also, you know, one year where I, uh, the olive oil that we bottled up was too high in antioxidants, so high in antioxidants that it actually tasted quite bitter. And so the taste profile wasn't there yet. And, you know, you get one shot, like there's one harvest per year. And so it took me two or three years to actually figure out the sweet spot on like taste and health benefits that makes the most sense for, you know, the U.S. consumer in that market. So I think there's a lot of learnings you can glean even while you're in your full-time role. Yeah. So you would say, you know, refine the product as much as possible, refine the packaging, like really get it to a place where you are, you're hundred percent about it, or at least maybe 95% happy and then go for it. Or what do you think? No, no, I wouldn't say that. Cause you're never going to be happy. <laughs> um, you're never going to be 90, 90% happy. I would say, get it out into the market and get some feedback because it's when you get it into consumers' hands and you're getting that sort of feedback loop that you can really begin to build a business and a product that people love. Did you wait until you had enough sales to kind of float financially? Is that something to consider as well? Or, you know, I think that's probably the biggest hurdle for a lot of people is financially not being able to afford to dive into their passion project full time. Right. And so at what point do you wait? What's the revenue look like? Like, you know, is it half your salary? Is it full your salary? How much runway do they need essentially to ramp up the business so that they are able to pay themselves maybe a living wage. So I don't know. I'm sure it's different for every business. Yeah, that's a very tough question. I think it totally depends on, you know, each person's individual circumstance and what their business looks like and whether you plan to be venture backed or not. So I think that is a big question to ask yourself, like, do I see this as a lifestyle business? Do I think that this can create, you know, profits that will fund my salary plus, you know, build equity in the company ongoing? Will I be able to hire people or am I signing up to do literally everything for the coming years? And so for me in, uh, at the end of 2019, I did raise our first round. It was a pre-seed round of funding, um, of about 500 K. Um, and so that was also like having that lined up and ready to go to launch the company was a, a pretty meaningful moment and making that decision too. Definitely. So it sounds like you went to investors and you're like, listen, I want to do this full time. I need this funding to get me to X, Y, Z milestones. And that also that I can focus full time on the business. Yes. And I was a little bit lucky this time because I had, this was my second time doing this. So with Manicube, my partner and I, I think we talked to, you know, 88 people to get our first, you know, seed round done. 
with Costa Rica, I actually had friends in the venture capital space and one who I'd been talking to about the idea who kind of was like, I would love to, to back you and, and love to support you in this. Um, and he was our very first investor and continues to be like an amazing supporter till this day. And so, yeah, that, you know, it depends on sort of your stage in life and, and doing it for the second time definitely made it a little bit easier this time around. Yeah. Well, because your business, Manicube and now Costa Rica are so different, did you find that investors from your past business were like, oh, no, it's not a fit for our fund because it's not it's different in X number of ways. Yes, it is very different. So um, Costa Rica was um, sorry, Manicube was very tech enabled. And so there we were talking to, you know, tech focused venture capital funds. Here we're talking really to consumer product focused venture funds and and VCs. So yes, very different from that sense. And um, we had just one big investor after our seed round of angels, we had just one big investor in Manicube and they wouldn't be a fit for a brand like Costa Rica, just very, very different potential outcomes and very different investment style. Um, You know, we're not, we use technology a lot uh, because we sell direct to consumer and we leverage the social platforms and all that, but we are not a technology company. We're truly a, a CPG lifestyle brand. Exactly. And that, the diff, there's a very big difference there, right? And I think there's sometimes often confusion, I think, with um, founders fundraising, that it's so important to focus on the right type of funds for your business. Yeah, it's important to find the right type of funds to know, you know, what kind of business you want to build, what could the potential outcome be and really build up work backwards from there. Speaking of fundraising, I know you've raised, I guess, almost four million total. So, how has the fundraising process been for you? I know you raised before, but this is for a totally different consumer brand lifestyle product. What has that journey looked like, and what challenges have you faced along the way? I think the biggest challenge was in um, in March of 2020 when I went out to the market to fundraise, and it was the very start of the pandemic. Um, I think you know funds at that time. That's when we sort of needed more capital. We had you know bought our initial inventory. We needed capital to build a team. That was a really hard fundraising period. In early 2020, we did bring in some um, small funds and and angel checks, but it was a long slog. And so I think, you know, fundraising can be so demoralizing as an entrepreneur. It's really kind of like the, you know, it's the best and the worst part of the job. It's great because it really helps you think about your business plan and what your strengths are and where to focus. And it can like shift your strategy in an instant or evolve your strategy, but it's also very difficult. So like having done this a few times now, I know that it can be very demoralizing. I expect that it will be very demoralizing because it really does take like 50 or a hundred no's to get to a yes. And you, you have to expect that, but it's still like when it's your baby and someone's like, awesome, like great progress. Let me know how things, how things go. You're kind of like, you know, it can yeah. it hurt. It hurts like, yeah, every sure. time. Yeah. It hurts every yeah. time. And you know not to let it do that. But um, I'm sure you've heard entrepreneurship is a roller coaster and you really do have like the highest highs and low lows as well. Um, and so yeah, definitely some of the low moments have been like getting no's from investors that I was like really excited about or thought were really excited about us and ended up not being. That's the worst being led on to, you know, I'm sure that happens a lot still where investors kind of, you know, dangle the carrot. Yeah, we're interested. Yep. Yep. We love this. We love that. And, you know, next thing you know, they're like, you know, we just had our meeting and just not going to work out or they go MIA, which I hope doesn't happen anymore. But I've had that happen. That's annoying. You get excited about working with an investor. They're like, seem super interested. And then they just fall off the radar completely. You're like, hello, 
<laughs> come back. Just give me a freaking answer, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's better to just get a quick answer than to draw yeah. the process for sure. But there are benefits to fundraising too. I really do think it like buttons you up from a financial perspective. You're thinking about things like margin and profitability maybe earlier than you would have. And um, you have a lot to prove and it really keeps your sort of milestones intact and you, you have what, you know, your milestones to work towards. And I think also when you're raising from investors, um, that process really forces you to think very big. Like you have to have such an enormous vision and it's good to kind of get into that practice of that story and that, you know, having that North star. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other advice I would have is to stay true to that vision. Like if an investor comes in and tells you, like I've had investors say, why do you want to launch in so many different categories so early? Why not just like grow an olive oil brand? And, you know, my answer to that is like, I never intended to just grow an olive oil brand. Um, I don't think I would have left my job at Walmart for that. What I want to build is a wellness platform with extra virgin olive oil at the core, which is very different in some ways. And so you want to make sure you don't get swayed by what an investor thinks for your business either. And that can happen a lot, especially when you're needing or wanting their money. <laughs> There's a lot of temptation like, to be okay, like, yeah, that's whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or just be like, yeah, that's a great idea. Sign here. <laughs> I'll let you know if I decide to do it that way or not. No, <laughs> don't do that. So it's important to be aligned with your investors early on. So you don't want to be playing games, but um, yeah, they always, there's many investors that have lots of opinions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of the, the value there's, there's a ton of value that comes from the board meeting and the, you know, the table of investors, um, because, you know, after the round closes, you are very aligned. They want your growth just as much as you do. And so, you know, they'll work for you. They'll help you find the right people, help you find the right agencies. They'll thinking about your strategy. They'll be living and breathing your brand in, sim- in a similar way to you. Um, and so there's definitely a lot of value in having that type of person around the table with you. What's something you wish you knew before you started, you know, building out and focusing on Costa Rena? I don't think I knew as much as I needed to about wholesale. So we sell Costa Rena and Whole Foods. And despite, because most of my career was in e-commerce, you know, both at, um, you know, Quidzy and Jet and even at Walmart, I was very focused on direct to consumer e-commerce. I didn't know enough about sort of in-store grocery and, um, and it's just a, a completely different business and a different way to market and a different way to access your customer. Uh, we also had our marketing plan put together for our launch at Whole Foods that was like, oh, as soon as people taste this olive oil, you know, they'll buy it. And so we, we had what we call demos in the whole marketing plan. And then the pandemic happened. And of course, no one was one, no one was in store. And two, no one was tasting a piece of bread with olive oil on it in a store. Demos are now allowed again. And so that has been a really meaningful, you know, change for us in terms of marketing at, at Whole Foods. So is that one of the things that you're thinking that you wish you would have known is kind of more the marketing side of working with a retailer? Yeah, I guess I would say more um, learning more about the distribution channels and how you have to treat them very, very differently. And what do you mean by treat them differently, I guess? Like what's something that with these wholesaler or these retailer relationships, what's something maybe that you didn't expect? What I mean by treat them differently is that it really just is a completely different business. Like when we think about selling on, you know, our on costarina.com, we're thinking about emails and social media marketing. Um, when we're thinking about selling in Whole Foods, it's about discounts and making sure we're priced very properly and um, having a demo plan and making sure the right buyer has our product. And so that just feels very different. Um, and so just wishing I had known more or at least had had experience in the wholesale side of CPG uh, in a deeper way before. 
And what's kind of um, a lesson that you've learned the hard way in building two businesses now? Expanding too quickly can be detrimental. My co-founder and I would both agree that we did that a little bit too quickly in, at Manicube. We, uh, we launched into four different cities. We had four teams on the ground across the country. And I don't think we had quite figured out perfectly how to do it in New York yet. Um, and we went to Chicago, Boston, and, and San Francisco. It's Costa Rica is a little different because we did cross categories very soon. And, it, you know, maybe the, the same learning will be there. But I think being careful about expansion um, is a lesson learned the hard way because uh, we could have been a lot more efficient with our capital if we had honed in on exactly how to do one city first. But it sounds like maybe at the time, looking back, do you feel like you guys thought you're already, but because it was like your first time doing it, you didn't really understand the depth maybe as much until retrospect. I think we were um, putting a lot of weight on first mover advantage. We're sort of like, we're the only ones doing this right now. Let's get into all the major cities because what if someone else, you know, grabs the market share and then we're not going to be able to get those contracts, which, you know, in retrospect, I think we probably could have taken a little bit more time. Right. There's a definitely, I think, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, you want to just take over the world tomorrow, yes, you know, exactly <laughs> or yesterday. <laughs> So that that's interesting that almost that feeling of urgency almost kind of got the best of doing it kind of a little bit more detailed and sustainably. I think so. That's interesting. So how do you think you've grown um, personally and professionally as a leader? I think coming back to fundraising, I think you you sort of there's definitely been some limiting beliefs there. Like, am I worthy of this capital? Am I going to know how to put it to work? Am I going to be able to build a sizable business that these investors are looking for? Um, and that sort of self-doubt. I think what really changes it is one experience. So like kind of doing it the second time around, you know, gives you a lot more confidence for sure. Like I, I know how to do this. Like I've hired a team before, I've raised money before. So I think experience helps a lot. And then I think like having that, authentic tie to what you're building and just being so excited. Like there's literally nothing else I would rather do right now than build Costa Rica. Like you could tell me like be the CEO of Apple and I would be like, no, thanks. I'm good. Like I'd like to build this elephant. Um, and so I think that there's a lot there that just really gives you sort of like the drive and the passion to build and, and work hard for, for what you want to create. That's so true. There really isn't very much else that's satisfying beyond really building your own business. It is. It is. It's very, very satisfying. And, and I think, you know, in my, in the past, it was very satisfying to also jump onto another entrepreneur's journey when I like felt aligned with it and felt excited about it and um, was excited by the team and the people I was working with too. Right. Definitely. So what's some kind of, I guess, final advice you have for, you know, founders or entrepreneurs tuning in and what can we see next from Costa Rica? Yeah, I think um, I would go back to the advice of don't quit your day job. Definitely like take the time to create your product, get it out in market and get feedback before you, you know, quit your job and then have no health insurance. Because I've been there. Um, I've, I sold all my Amazon stock in order to launch Manicube. Um, oh, no. By the way, I sold that stock at $143 today. It's like, I don't, I mean, over $2,500 per share. So <laughs> you make some really dumb decisions. Like I said, like loving entrepreneurship is a blessing and a curse. Like you can do some really dumb things along the way to, to follow these dreams. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of, I guess I would leave that advice. Um, and then what's next for Costa Rica? Uh, super exciting growth ahead. So we're launching nationally in Whole Foods. So we'll, you'll be able to find our olive oils and balsamic vinegars across, you know, almost all stores across the country in Whole Foods. Um, when is we, that? Um, in May. 
Awesome. May. Perfect. Yep. Um, so that's big for us. And then, um, we're focused on uh, new product development. So we're definitely expanding our skincare line. We launched just our first two SKUs. We do have a few more in the works to launch this year. Um, we're actually launching one of them next week. I won't give away the, the big surprise, but you can find it on um, our Instagram account next week. And then, um, and continuing to iterate in the food categories and expand uh, both in chocolate, um, in olive oil, in balsamic vinegar. So lots more to come from the new product development side from us as well. That's awesome. We might have to have you back when we have more time to go into more deeply kind of what it was like to, you know, do the deal with Whole Foods, you know, to launch in Whole Foods. Yeah, that would be fun. Definitely happy to anytime. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Katina, for being on the show and sharing your really inspiring story. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks for um, getting these stories out of entrepreneurs. They're so valuable and I love listening to them as well. So love what you're doing. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.